2: All right, so before we start, I'm just going to mention Hannah Fry's new book, Hello World. It's all about algorithms and how they affect every element of our lives. So healthcare, robotics, sort of working factories, everywhere in the modern world, we're dealing with algorithms now. And this is what she discusses in the book. One of the really interesting things I think is whether you can have creative machines. So there's lots of arguments between artists and algorithm designers, roboticists about whether machines can be truly creative. And one of the things that Hannah discusses in the book is, you know, can you talk about a machine as being creative and being as creative as a human? You know, so imagine making music. And you're in this position where you've got this algorithm that's composing music in the style of Bach or whatever. And if you're listening to it, maybe you can't tell whether it's like a Bach fugue that you've never heard before. And so you might argue that that's like creative. It's incredible. It's created something that really sounds like a Bach fugue. But is that really creative? Or is that just kind of an algorithm copying a style? And, you know, there's no clear answer to this. It's really up in the air. And lots of people I've spoken to, you know, would say we can definitely have creative machines. And other people say, well, you know, They look like it or you can have like a creative drummer who does amazing drum performances but would you actually ever want to go and watch a robot doing an algorithm that mimics creativity or maybe it is creative maybe I shouldn't judge like that so that's one of the things that's in this book, Hello World, and she goes into a lot of detail about where the limits of creativity are, what a machine is capable of, and what actually remains for humans to be creative in. So Hello World is out on the sixth of September in Hardback, an ebook, and available to pre-order from Amazon. The audiobook is out now and it's read by Hannah herself. And you can follow Hannah at, at Fryar Squared on Twitter.
0: They do. Eleven stainless steel pins in the bones. Multiple torn ligaments. Severe nerve damage in both hands.
2: <sighs> you were on the table for eleven hours. No one could have done better. I could
1: have done better. spent so my last dollar getting here. One we ticket, and you're talking to me about healing through belief.
0: You reject the possibility? No,
1: I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter, and nothing more. Fundamentally,
3: meditation is not so much an exercise as it is a certain way of using one's mind or one's consciousness. Meditation, or a partic- in particular mindfulness meditation, is at least two and a half thousand years old.
2: One of our schools in Kent is the first in the country to add lessons in meditation to the school curriculum, but is it a waste of time?
3: We have to be silent some of the time, don't we, in order to hear what other people have to say and therefore to have something to talk about. In just the same way, our minds have to be silent some of the time if we are really to have anything to think about except thoughts. You cannot beat a river into
0: submission. You have to surrender to its current and use its power as your own.
1: I I control it by surrendering control, It doesn't make any sense.
3: Not everything does. It is a very, very effective treatment. Mindfulness proved to be at least as good as drugs or counselling, especially for the worst forms of depression.
0: Have you seen that before in a gift shop?
4: Me. Hello and welcome to Scienceish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. So we take a piece of fiction and ask one big old question about it. Now, a while back we covered the film Doctor Strange Love. Obviously, it was a superb episode. It was. It was. Um, Everybody said so. So much so that this week I decided to find the film with the closest possible name <laughs> in the hope of there being a kind of halo effect. Oh, uh,
2: yeah, the new science-ish algorithm for choosing films. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's
4: come up with Doctor Strange.
2: Oh, nice. Close, isn't it? Yeah, very yeah, close. it's very good. you seen it? I have seen it, yes, yeah. yeah. When did you see it? Uh, just shortly after release. I don't think I saw it at the cinema. I think I saw it at home, but um, yeah, it was sort of all right. I didn't have yeah, strong I mean, feelings about it.
4: No, it's fine, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's fine. It's... Well done, Benedict. Yeah, so
4: it's Benedict Cumberbatch playing Doctor Strange, who is, and I don't think he might be saying this, bit of a bell bellend, <laughs> um, very uh, arrogant surgeon, has a car crash in his Lamborghini, or Boo-hoo. <laughs> yeah Although um, well, I read a, a funny thing where apparently Lamborghini were annoyed because in the event of a crash like that, apparently the cabin detaches from the rest of the car to keep you safe. Oh, nice. Which is pretty good. Yeah, and that very much doesn't happen in
2: the <laughs> <laughs> It's like an ejector cabin.
4: Something like that. I mean, God knows how it's like a really advanced version of an
2: airbag. Yeah. And how um, much have Lamborghini paid for us to say all this?
4: They actually haven't been in touch with the show
2: yet. Oh, that's, that's a call that's coming though, isn't
4: it? I think so. Yeah. Um, and we'll just get the Scientist logo printed on our Lambos. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> like an absolute pair of Doctor Strangers. <laughs> um, so anyway, and he, and, and he absolutely knackers his hands. He's got like really bad nerve damage and he wants to get fixed. And he goes and seeks help from the... Mystical East. Yes. Um, yeah, in, in, which in we all Nepal. do, don't we? Yes, I think so. It's a sensible thing to do. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, well, in the absence of a national health service. Yes, yeah, true. Very,
4: do. very expensive in America yeah, to get your, yeah. um,
2: your nerves working again. Yeah, you might as well have, uh, spunk out for a plane ticket.
4: Yeah. Well, I go think to the
2: Tibet I'd... or whatever it was.
4: The idea is that he's sort of running out of money because he hasn't been able to do any of his high-paying surgery.
2: Oh, boo
4: Yeah. So he gets, you know, taught all about sort of meditation and, uh, and the mind and so on. So
2: what's our big question going to be?
4: Can meditation change our brains? And
2: who do we line up to answer that?
4: We've actually got Dr. Danny Penman, um, who originally trained as a, a biochemist and now is, is all over all things meditation. Uh, he's a co author of the international bestseller Mindfulness Finding Peace in a Frantic World, and his latest book is The Art of Breathing. So we started by asking him to tell us what is meditation, Danny? One breath through your nose.
0: Feel it go all the way through
3: your body? Meditation or meditations are really a, a family or a collection of psychological tools. Uh, the most popular of which in recent years is, is obviously mindfulness. Mindfulness is quite simply paying full conscious attention to whatever is going on in the present moment. A simple breathing meditation is where you would sit down on a straight-backed chair, close your eyes, and feel the sensations of the air as it flowed into and out of your body. But then there are others, such as Transcendental Meditation, which is where you pay attention to a mantra that you... or, you know, a phrase or a sound that you repeat constantly in your mind. To have the mind free from discursive verbal thinking. Sound, or chanted sound, is extremely useful. If you, for example, simply listen to the gong and let that sound be the whole of your experience, another type of visualization meditations as well. Visualization has been used uh, for a great many uh, years uh, by often sports people um, who will kind of visualize themselves, uh, you know, winning a race or performing better. It was just a number that.
0: I randomly picked and wrote it down on a sheet of paper meditated on it until i no longer felt the need to meditate and well, it loud. happened
3: yeah this was actually a very broad category meditation or a particular in particular mindfulness meditation is at least two and a half thousand years old its first recorded occurrence was with the buddha the buddha was the first one to Uh, actively teach meditation. But it was probably a technique that was around before then. It's not just a Buddhist technique. Uh, You know, it was used by other religions as well, and also by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, It was quite common in Christianity until the late Middle Ages, and when the, um, the, the the monasteries were broken up, it just kind of fell out of use. In Islam, it was certainly very common uh, until quite recently. The Sufis used to do lots of meditation as well. Now, this sounds like it is a religious practice, uh, but it isn't, actually. It's quite commonly practiced by many atheists. Uh, it's just that these religious traditions developed the technique uh, it's completely secular and they kept it alive through the millennia uh, but it is you know it's not nothing to do with religion really it's as religious as drinking wine and eating bread is to christianity you know it's just it's part of the overarching culture without being a religious
2: practice itself i mean meditation is when I was growing up, it was kind of seen very much as a kind of niche, eastern, kind of weird, mystical kind of practice. Hippie vibes, But right? it's not that now, is it?
4: No, no. I mean, as Dr. Danny said, it's been around for a, a long time. And then, in the West, it was just viewed as being kind of hippie, and certainly the scientific community didn't give it any credence at all. But the, the real thing that kind of changed it, I think, in the West was in the, in the sort of mid-70s... Um, Transcendental meditation uh, became kind of known as a drugless high that lots of celebrities were using. So the Beatles were on it, Mia Farrow was on it, Sinatra was on it, um, and uh, and so people became more and more interested. And right. then you yeah, come the come the nineties. You've got. Um, What's his face? Deepak Chopra uh, oh, talks, my about his, uh, yeah, talks about his book on Oprah, which sold 137,000 copies in a day, which is actually, um, that's more Quite, than science has yeah, sold. I was going to say, that is impressive. In its entire, uh, like, you know, eight months or whatever. So <laughs> well, give 137,000 in a day, I mean. Yeah. Ka- I... Ching, motherfucker! So, essentially, there's some money in it. What was that book called? It was called Ageless Body, Timeless Mind, which is an absolutely
2: gash title. Well, it's not that gash, is it, if it's selling 137,000 copies a day?
4: (laughs) The guy smashed it. Uh, And that was sort of in the 90s. And now there's just, you know, there's so many, like, mindfulness studios, like Headspace have set up special little mindfulness pods. Mindfulness and meditation is now pretty, pretty big business in in the West, and everyone's kind of on it.
2: Everyone's on it. Nobody's necessarily on it just because of the scientific reputation, but that's growing is yeah it?
4: so richard davidson is one of the big dons so he's a neuroscientist who was at harvard who got very interested in meditation and mindfulness and he met the dalai lama and the dalai lama said look you spend all this time as a neuroscientist kind of looking at the uh, functionality of the brain in relation to depression and you know anxiety and and fear you should look at the effects of kindness and, positive. and, and, and generosity, like five. The positive vibe. Yeah. Um, but then subsequently, he did uh, sort of hook up some monks, you know, like electrodes on the on the scalp and stuck them in MRIs and stuff, and he found that there were systematic changes in the brain associated with generosity. So you notice these high amplitude gamma oscillations in the brain that are indicative of Plasticity, which means that your brain is Wait, able what? to gamma
2: rays in his brain.
4: N- not, not, and this is pretty good actually. So I read an article where they had to put a correction at the bottom. Where like originally we'd refer to gamma rays throughout this article, <laughs> but of course gamma rays are a form of electromagnetic radiation uh, that come from radioactive atoms, etc. And gamma waves are not that. Monks do not have radioactive heads. <laughs> Although it's a really nice idea that the Dalai Lama is just super radioactive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, glowing. <laughs> uh, so no, not that. Um, and that's the sort of example where neuroscientists are looking and saying, all right, the practice of meditation is doing something to brain function.
1: I spent my last dollar getting here one my ticket and you're talking to me about healing through belief.
0: You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole and you've spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole to see more, to know more. And now on hearing that it can be widened, In ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility.
1: I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. You're just another tiny, momentary speck within an indifferent universe.
0: You think too little of yourself.
1: Oh, you think you see through me, do you? Well, you don't. But I see through you!
2: Do we know what the sort of effect of these gamma waves is?
4: Gamma waves are linked to lots of different things, but consciousness, attention, learning, memory.
2: So they're super able to concentrate on something, focus attention on something? or
4: Yeah, so there's a thing called attentional blink. And the idea is that if you have two images flashed up very quickly, so within half a second of one another, quite often the regular observer will put so much attention on the first image that they miss the second image. So it's sort of like blinking. I mean, you're actually blinking, but you just miss the second image. And it's been shown that meditators, these monks who've done it for thousands and thousands of hours, they seem to reduce attentional blink, which is a pretty amazing result because it had always been thought before that that was just a feature of human experience.
2: Right, so you can train your brain to be more attentive and to notice... things that are are there.
4: Yeah, so you will notice more things, but oddly, it's not necessarily about paying more attention. It's almost paying equal attention to stuff rather than getting fixated on things. Oh, yeah, yeah. So these monks, these experienced meditators, can notice more things around them in the world because they're dividing their attention up more equally.
2: Okay, I I, I take that. It's not the kind of thing that Hollywood's making films about, though, is it? No, no, it's not. The man who could pay attention more than anyone else. You're getting much voiceover work at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, can they do anything that's kind of superhuman? They, they can do some quite spicy
4: stuff. So there have been some experiments where you get monks and you put them in very cold rooms or caves or whatever, uh, and then you put um, wet blankets, wet sheets over them, like cold, wet sheets. Yeah, You or I would immediately go into uncontrollable shivering and then
2: potentially die.
4: Yeah. These guys basically just sweat it off so that the sheets start to steam a bit. No. And they're absolutely oh. fine.
2: Oh, see, now I'm, now there I'm hooked.
4: There you go. Now yeah. you like it. Oh, yeah. I think that the experiment probably needs doing a few more times. But like there's some other like really. Oh, no, don't spicy disappoint stuff. me now. No, I know. Is I just, a sample of one? No, it's not a sample of one. But I think that the, there's a sort of argument that maybe the room wasn't that cold. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they're like these monks will go out and sleep on ledges in mountains in freezing conditions yeah. and just sleep there and they're fine. And do again, they not hire themselves I would, out as tumble dryers as well? Well, I don't think they're necessarily going to want to dry your clothes for you. I don't think that's the idea. Um, Save electricity. The path path to enlightenment for them is to drying your wet pants.
1: John Kabat-Zinn has pioneered the use of meditation techniques to treat thousands of patients who suffer from chronic pain and stress.
3: In the 1980s, the late 1980s, a man called John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center realized that mindfulness meditation could be very useful for pain control and for relieving uh, stress and anxiety. So he developed... A, a program known as Mindfulness-Based Stress Relief. And he began to teach it to his patients and with really quite remarkable results. Everybody thought it was a good idea, even back in 1979 when there just didn't exist things like this. Then in the early 1990s, psychologists at uh, Oxford University, notably uh, Mark Williams, heard about John Kabat-Zinn's research and incorporated it into cognitive behavioral therapy and created a technique called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And propaganda against the self is, I'm failure,
0: I'm stupid, look what's happened to you. It's like something sitting on your shoulder,
3: whispering in your ear how bad you are. And the mindfulness turbocharged the CBT. And it proved to be at least as good as drugs or counselling, especially for the worst forms of depression. So this was actually quite a revolution in in mental health. Meditation enables you to see the chatter of the mind
0: just going on and on and on. And to begin, not to try to, to repress it or suppress it, but just to notice it, to acknowledge it, even to welcome it. And say, almost with a smile, ah, oh,
3: there you are again. And about 10 years ago, it uh, began to be uh, recognised by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Uh, it was recommended for the treatment of the worst forms of depression. And there's been uh, eight or nine major clinical trials now that have shown it is very effective, you know, at least as good as drugs or counselling for treating depression. And a trial that was published um, a couple of years ago in The Lancet, that, this was the gold standard trial, really, showed that actually for the worst cases of depression you know where people have had a history of kind of childhood abuse where their mental health was completely unstable well this was actually slightly better than being on antidepressants uh, you know for for life so it is a very very effective treatment so in in
4: some of these studies where you have patients who are doing a mindfulness meditation program you're seeing effects that are positive and similar in effectiveness to other existing treatments but obviously that doesn't apply to everyone in all all cases some people will be more receptive than others yeah
2: and some people are in a in a position where they've kind of got a handle on where they are so they can actually sort of do these kinds of things because sometimes with depression you you know you're not in a position where you can just do mindfulness you can't do CBT stuff necessarily so you know this isn't a, a sort of one-size-fits-all at all, is it? No, no,
4: no, not in the slightest. And
2: obviously the thing to do is for people to kind of find, you know, medical advice that that works for them.
4: Yeah, or really the thing to do is get hold of some mice and see if you can do some experiments on them, oh, as always. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an interesting one because um, you'd imagine that it'd be quite hard to do experiments of doing mindfulness with mice. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. Famous for their attention oh, span. Obvious point. Um, how um, are you teaching them?
2: <laughs> presumably they did it with goldfish first.
4: That is not what they did. So this team of people used optogenetics. Oh, yeah. So this is where you genetically engineer certain cells to be switched on by light. So then you can switch on cells using pulses of light to stimulate the kind of brain waves that you get with mindfulness. And then you can do a thing where if you put a, a mouse into a box and half of it is light and half of it is dark, mice right. that are nervous or anxious will tend to be more in the dark side and mice that are feeling quite sort of relaxed and calm will happily be in the light. Yeah. And you notice when you use the mice that you've been activating their brain cells with light in the way that mindfulness apparently does in our brain, they were much happier in the light. Uh-huh. So they seem to be
2: calmer. I mean, that's that's nice because it shows that it is something going on in the brain. And I mean, are there other ways in which meditation changes the brain? Yes,
4: yeah, so there's lots of effects on the brain. So in, in long-term meditators, they have better preserved brains than non-meditators. In what way? Like, so they have... They don't um, age so much. So effectively, yeah. So they have more grey matter volume throughout the brain, so the entire brain, than people of a similar age who don't meditate i mean there's still they still don't have as much as younger meditators because there's still natural aging but it's but it's an improvement wow
0: i would like a moment alone with mr strange of
1: course my hands it's
0: not about your hands how is this not about my hands you cannot beat a river into submission You have to surrender to its current and use its power as your own.
1: I I control it by surrendering control. It doesn't make any sense.
0: Not everything does. Not everything has to. Your intellect has taken you far in life, but it will take you no further. Surrender, Stephen. Silence your ego.
2: So, I mean, presumably, though, it's quite difficult to do really sort of bulletproof studies on this because everyone's different. They're coming from different places. They'll have different kind of reactions to doing mindfulness training and stuff like that so i mean how do you do a really good sort of randomized controlled trial of this stuff
4: yeah so it's something that's been observed and criticized a lot because you know what can you deduce from a sample of isolated buddhist monks who spend their whole time meditating clearly not a representative sample (laughs) yeah and then if you're not randomizing samples at the very least you'd like a control group but how do you have a control group with mindfulness? How do you come up with a kind of placebo? And so a a study has been done where they kind of worked out a way of doing a placebo. So they got these stressed men and women, 35 of them, and then some of them were taught mindfulness meditation and the rest of them were given a kind of sham (laughs) mindfulness so they were they were told to do like stretching exercises and they'd all be like (laughs) laughing and joking around in the room when the mindfulness uh, expert was in there and so very much not doing the thing of mindfulness which yeah. is focusing on the present but very yeah. much being out of yourself and concentrating on it like group dynamics and stuff like that yeah. and then you look at the results and you do see some striking evidence that mindfulness is changing the brain in a meaningful way okay. and tackling stress and anxiety so we're
2: starting to get a handle on at least how to do these kinds of experiments and how to move things forward i mean is there any dangers with mindfulness stuff any negatives?
4: I mean, one thing is that meditation is not always going to be the right thing to do. You might come to think of it as your as your sort of uh, catch-all salve. When actually, you know, going for a run or having a swim or, or going out and seeing friends or watching a film, whatever, all of those things have value in terms of your happiness and mental health. Right. And sometimes people just become fixated on meditation as being the one thing that they
2: do. Okay, yeah.
4: And then... There are people who get such a high out of it that they end up then kind of chasing that high so they want that feel-good state that they had and that in itself is quite a negative yeah because it's to kind of deficit into.
2: all the time yeah, yeah
4: exactly yeah and something i think is interesting as well is that meditation kind of means that you can use mindfulness to be at peace with anything that happens so if someone treat you badly you can use mindfulness to be calm about it right. and actually that's not always the right thing to do no like sometimes you need to you, you need to call the people out like you can just kind of become
2: blindly accepting so you become a doormat effectively y- yeah
4: that's not a very positive thing I it's don't not think. a good
2: look is it really? not really no. no it's not very you either i can't it's imagine you doing very that. very
4: much not me
3: <laughs> i think mindfulness has become popular over the last 10 years or so for a confluence of many different things.
1: Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street.
3: My personal view is the financial crisis triggered a complete re-evaluation of people's lives. You know, all of a sudden people became quite fearful uh, about their financial future. (laughs) Living standards have fallen it's again. It's the first That's
4: election gone. since the 1920s where people are going to feel worse off at this election than they did when they voted five years ago. Uh, youth unemployment is up. That's very worrying. Long-term unemployment is also up. And this big problem underemployment of underemployment...
3: And with that came the realisation that although they had all these kind of material possessions... Uh, Uh, They could be taken away from you at any moment uh, and they they can only take you so far. You know, um, a wonderful big red sports car is only going to make you happy for a while, maybe a few weeks or a few months. Any possession, any amount of money will only make you happy for a relatively short period of time. I think people also realize that society was becoming increasingly atomized. You know, we, we live in a world of kind of winner-takes-all capitalism. And it's quite brutal, uh, especially if you are struggling to get by.
1: Moritz Erhardt was a 21-year-old German student, finishing off an internship at the London office of Bank of America Merrill Lynch. While his death is currently unexplained, it has sparked concerns that interns work too many hours trying to break into the financial world. And I also think
3: people are working too hard. You know, for the 200 years leading up to the 1980s, people were working progressively less each year. In fact, the the, the economist John Maynard Keynes estimated that By now, we should be working about 15 hours a week. Instead, we're working, what, 38, 40 hours a week. We're also commuting a lot further. We are in an always-on work culture as well. You know, our smartphones mean that we are never away from work. Uh, We are never away from social media or emails. Um, We just cannot switch off, you know.
0: A new report found... Half of all young people feel they are addicted to their devices. Almost 60% of adults think their kids are addicted too. And a third of parents and teens say they are
3: And that, I think, is a huge, huge problem. And I think that that is, you know, mindfulness provides an antidote to all of these, uh, all of these problems. In 10 years, uh, we won't actually notice mindfulness anymore. I think it would be such a part of the background, just like brushing our teeth, that we just won't notice it. It will just be something that we just do every day. You know, we might do maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes of classical meditation. We will just become more aware of our daily lives, which is a mindfulness technique. You know, it has been latched onto by the corporate world because it helps clarity of thought uh, decision making and creativity uh but it is so much more than that you know it is it's the antidote to many of the ills of the modern world i mean i love the modern world i love technology but there is a downside to it and it's burning us out and it is destroying the quality of life for a great many people um because We just don't know how to handle it yet. You know, a lot of these technologies have only been around for, say, 10 or sometimes 15 years. We just haven't developed the social techniques to to handle them, you know. And I
2: think that mindfulness is one of the tools that will help us to do that. So I buy some of what he's saying there. I kind of understand it. My biggest problem with this almost is that I feel like it's being sort of monetized now. It's like somebody's worked out how to monetize meditation and uh, make it a kind of commodity that they can sell, that we can buy. I mean, it's all very far removed from Buddhist monks meditating on mountains these days, isn't it?
4: The sort of mindfulness industry in the United States is worth a billion dollars now. Oh, What I think people are concerned about is that this sort of popular, secular mindfulness that people have dubbed muck mindfulness obviously um is almost um sort of (laughs) feeding capitalism so it's almost in lines with certain sort of neo-liberal ideas so it's suggesting okay you look after yourself you just do all this self-care, make sure that you're robust and, and happy. You control your own fate, and then you'll be more productive at work. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so, that, so lots of companies, you know, who are promoting mindfulness, saying, "Look, we've got these these breakout spaces. You can go and be mindful." Their idea is actually, if you're mindful, you will be better employees for them. Right uh, And there's even stuff, I, this is just, I read this somewhere, that companies are quite interested in making sure that employees are mindful and doing mindfulness exercises just before they get sacked, <laughs> because, they'll, <laughs> because they'll take it better.
2: <laughs> oh, Rick, would you mind stepping into yeah. the mindfulness pod? And then we've got oh, no, an appointment news, in about 30 yeah. minutes. <laughs> so, obviously, I'm slightly cynical about the industry around it. I'm slightly cynical about some of the claims that are made and the, and the, you know, the, the results of experiments and stuff. But fundamentally, you know, to run down our question, can we actually say whether meditation changes our brains?
4: I think we can 100% say that it does. I think there's enough evidence now. And particularly, I know there are extreme examples, but when you look at the results that you get from these studies with monks, yeah. stuff is happening. Um, in in functional areas of of the brain are different to people who aren't meditating, and I think we're kind of a, it's quite close to the start of a, a journey of understanding exactly what's going on. Um, but something is going on, right? And I think we're just and and of course this has been going on for thousands of years. People have people have been doing it for a reason for thousands of years, and we're now just putting on a kind of biological explanation of what is happening.
2: Right. Okay. And to be continued effectively. Yeah, although probably not by me. But I really, no. I find it quite hard <laughs> meditating. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if there's a lot of sort of burning and freezing of monks involved as well, that's. Seems...
4: Yeah, that, that's not part of mindfulness, I don't think. Oh, is
2: it not? No. Oh, sorry, I must have misunderstood that as well.
4: Yeah, so don't do that. Okay. If you do want to give any of this mindfulness stuff a go, Dr. Danny's got all of his uh, meditations for his books free for anyone to download from his website which is franticworld.com.
2: Oh, so he's not monetizing. He's not
4: monetizing. He's just a good guy.
2: Oh, I like Dr. Danny. Give
0: me up, give me up.
4: Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley, edited by L. Scott. Special thanks to Dr. Danny Penman. If you like this show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you. It helps. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish.
2: So why is mindfulness effective? For depression, I mean, do we actually know what's happening in the brains of these people? Are we sure about this?
4: Ah, oh, fuck knows. Don't ask me that because I, I literally, I, I okay, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>